They said, we're not going to give this guy any oxygen. We think he's a racist, we think he's anti-immigrant, and we don't, we're not going to sit in the same room as him. Google needs us in a way more than we need Google. Welcome to the Media Jungle Video Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Regeer, coming to you every week to break down the business behind the news industry, the future of media, and the creator economy. Subscribe to our Substack newsletter and YouTube channel, and don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. We appreciate your support. In this episode, we have Jeffrey Dvorkin, who wrote the book, Trusting the News in a Digital Age Towards a New News Literacy. He's a longtime top journalist from CBC in Canada and former public editor for NPR. Jeffrey, thanks for joining. Nobody trusts the news. We have business model problems, misinformation, fake news. We have so many things in the mix. And I always get the same question. People ask me, where do I find real news? And how can I be a good news consumer? That's why we brought Jeffrey, who's been studying this. What should I tell these people? You've been studying this. What should we tell these people? Well, I tell them to slow down, for one thing. That uh, when I was teaching, uh, you know, 18, 19-year-olds, and they were overwhelmed. They were really kind of drowning in stuff. It wasn't knowledge. It was just sort of an information flow. And it was like, I described it as like taking a drink from a fire hose. You don't get a lot of liquid. You don't get a lot of sustenance. And it kind of rips your lips off. And, and this, was, this has been part of the issue. One of the reasons I wrote the book was to kind of help these young people and maybe some not-so-young people figure out techniques for handling this tsunami of information that we see all the time, whether it's as soon as we wake up, we turn on our smartphones or we, or we turn on our computers uh, and then we go to uh, traditional media and, and see what's going on. And it, the flow is constant. And so what's happened is, is that news organizations, which used to compete amongst themselves, are now competing with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. And so the idea of a news organization giving thoughtful, contextualized, edited information is has disappeared especially over the last few years as things have become much more frenzied um, and the politics uh, everywhere not just in the united states but in canada and the uk and now with the war in ukraine people are really finding it hard to manage and so what i decided to do was to help people understand that they need to slow down be a little bit skeptical, and to check the sources. This, to me, is the, is the critical point. If you can verify where the information comes from, then, you are, then you're ahead of the game. And, it, and, and what, what we're seeing is, is that media organizations, even the responsible, respectable ones, are finding the economic system that they're in now very complicated, not very easy. And so there is a desire to kind of 
see if they can find that missing audience that disappeared into the internet uh, and to reassemble it somehow in order to re resume the kind of profit margin that they enjoyed five to 10 years ago. And maybe we can even slow down and, uh, and talk about what are the kind of steps that a consumer should take to feel good about uh, their, who they're reading or watching. Right. I think one of the things is, is that because so much information is now put on the, on the internet, um, it's really important for consumers of information to look closely at who's doing the reporting. Is this a familiar name? Uh, where does this information come from? Has the reporter, has the media organization been really clear about where the, how they got the story, who their sources were? Are they quoting anonymous sources? In which case, there should be a, a good stated reason why they're not identifying their sources. That's sort of the first level, the first way to triage the information as it's coming across to you. And if you're looking at the information online, go to the bottom of that home page, scroll down and see if you can find a link that says about us and click on that. And that should tell you a lot about who's behind this information, where it's come from, and how you can contact someone if you want to have an opinion about what you've just consumed. And I think that when you go to a website and there's no about us, then I think we have to kind of consider that this is a little bit skeptical, uh, that, we're, that, that we're in a kind of sketchy area and we really need to, uh, to take a step back and say, well, maybe we shouldn't be consuming this information. We think that when we go to Google and we have a Gmail account that we have, that we have made a deal with Google that we can use their, their email accounts. When in fact, we the consumers are now the product. Google needs us in a way more than we need Google or any of the others. Uh, and I think that this is something that we need to also be aware of, that every time we go online, somebody knows a little bit more about us, who we are, what we're watching, what we're buying, uh, what we're consuming. I mean, if you, uh, I was looking for when a few months ago when it was really cold here in Canada, I needed a, a new set of uh, gloves for the winter. So I went online and I found a pair and then suddenly I'm being flooded with ads for other, other gloves. <laughs> I only have two pair. I only have a pair of hands. Um, and I think that this, this just shows you that they are tracking us all the time. I don't mean to sound paranoid, but the reality is, is that we live in a, what's called now a surveillance society, that somebody is watching us, everything we do, every time we go online, all the time. Most of the time, that's fine. Sometimes it, it, it might not be so good. So I look at websites sometimes and I see it and someone sends me a website and I'm like, oh, this is completely biased. But it's sort of in my inherent brain because I was a journalist for so many years. Have you thought about how people can teach themselves how to see something and be like, this is bias? Well, I, that's a really interesting question. And uh, I'll be teaching a course on media ethics uh, this summer at the University of Toronto. And one of the lectures I've just finished 
creating is, is there good bias and is there bad bias? And of course there's good bias in the sense that if you are a journalist and you think that we should be spending a little more time covering issues in rural communities and not just concentrate on the big cities, that's a bias. And that's, in a way, that's a good bias. A bad bias is when people say, I'm only going to look at stuff on the internet that confirms my suspicions. And that's where we get into trouble. And there's a lot of what the sociologists call bias confirmation. This is where people go online and only deal with ideas and people with whom they are familiar and supportive and or entertained. I mean, the, 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 the difficulty now is that as media organizations, the so-called responsible ones, try to provide the information that people need as citizens and not just as consumers, this is where the trouble starts. Because media organizations, even the good ones, take the, a list of the people who have clicked on their websites and they're selling that information to political parties, to survey groups, to pollsters, to, to anyone who, who will pay for them. And I think that this is now also part of the deal that we as citizens need to demand a better way in which media organizations handle our information that we have handed over to them for free and they're profiting from it. Someone needs to be held accountable. That's a good segue into the next segment, self-cleaning oven. The late and great David Carr called the internet the self-cleaning oven of journalism, basically saying Twitter critics will keep journalists accountable. But who are these people on Twitter? Now the top editors from CNN and New York Times are telling their journalists to get off Twitter because it perpetuates the echo chamber where journalists are living in silos and becoming more and more radical. It is an oven. But who knows how well it cleans? When David said this, um, and I met him a few years ago, he came up to Toronto to, to speak to, to a journalistic group, and he, he used that phrase. And we thought, oh, that's really clever. But then when you think about it, I'm not sure that, it actually, the, that the internet works in that way. The, the theory is, and a lot of media managers believe this, and may still believe it as far as I know, that we don't need editorial smarts. We need the internet. There was a meeting of publishers in Toronto with the publishers of the three biggest newspapers in Canada, the Toronto Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, and Montreal's La Presse. And we asked them, I asked them, uh, what's the future of journalism now? Where do you see newspapers going? And all three of them said, it's digital, 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 and more digital. And because they see it, partly as a way to economize, to make their newsrooms operate more, more quickly, more efficiently. And it, as, a, as a recovering news manager myself, I always thought, well, how can we make sure that people are working not to overcapacity, but to, to their best capacity? And so there was a time, maybe five, six years ago, where and, bef and before that, where news managers said, you know that internet, this is going to be the way in which we can get rid of older, more expensive employees, hire younger people with digital smarts who can post stuff constantly because that's the way they live and we'll be better for it. 
and the problem has it hasn't proven to be true. The the issue for media organizations is compounded because um, it's expensive to do news in a in a in a responsible way. You could put someone in a radio studio and have that person bloviate over a number of issues. It's much more expensive to create a, a foreign bureau covering the war in Ukraine. That is very expensive. So you're sort of saying that in the beginning, when David Carr said that, it was sort of the idea that this plethora of different voices and thoughts on the internet would really be much better critics than having one or two uh, very experienced journalists critique the, inter- the the coverage. But now we're having basically very young journalists who are, have not had all of that experience. On top of that are then every day getting sort of influenced by the people who are critiquing them. So they're essentially influencing the coverage. That's exactly right. That's perfect. I think what we're seeing now is that news organizations have said, okay, we need to do the right thing by our audiences. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we have to hire young because young people know more than older people do. And then they can bring all of these digital skills into our news organization. That's going to be a good thing. And we want to hire, we want to hire people, young people, who more accurately reflect the audiences, the public that we serve, so that many news organizations have done a great job in the 1980s and 90s in hiring more women when there were accusations that news organizations were full of older white men. They said, you're right, let's hire more women, and more women were hired, and now they've come into a level of, of managerial excellence. A lot of news organizations, not all of them, but a lot of them are now run by women. Fine. What's happened more recently is that the idea of having a more diverse newsroom, a more diverse media organization, where you have journalists of color, you have issues around gender and sexuality, and the idea that these young people will bring a new uh, way of perceiving journalism. And so a lot of news organizations have become much more diverse, which is a very good thing. But, (laughs) and here's the interesting thing for me anyway, um, is that older managerial cohort believes that journalism is not a profession, it's still a craft. That is to say, you come into a newsroom, you're a young person, you learn the skills, you learn what the, the culture of the place is, you do. You have a lot of really lousy shifts. You do stories that you don't that you're being handed by your assignment editor, and eventually you reach a level of competence where you feel comfortable asserting your own editorial judgment inside the news organization. Young people now are saying, "I'm not going to wait for that. I'm here. I've got a degree from Columbia or the University of Toronto, and." You're not listening to me, and I have ideas about what is important for the people that I know about. So we have this a generation gap inside many, many news organizations where you have the older managerial class saying, be patient, you'll learn, and you'll be fine. And we have this younger cohort, some of whom call themselves resistance journalists, because they're not willing to wait. They want... 
they they want they want they want their reality now and so they're pushing very strongly for it and it's creating a lot of tension inside news organizations i'll give you one example um the toronto star which is a kind of left liberal newspaper in toronto it's been around for 150 years it's it's a long tradition of social justice etc etc very much part of the Methodist church tradition, not that they were openly religious, but they had that kind of social awareness. And they have been very good about hiring people, and especially young people, and a diverse newsroom exists at the Toronto Star. For the national elections, the federal elections in Canada, the Toronto Star has what they call editorial boards, where they invite the leaders of the parties, and there are four or five parties two or three of them are significant, but they always invite the leaders to come to an editorial board meeting at the Toronto Star, that it's open, everything's on the record, and it's open to anyone in the, at the Toronto Star to come in and throw questions at the leaders. So the prime minister came, the leader of the opposition, the head of the conservative party came, the head of the socialist party came, and then they invited a new, more right-wing, anti-immigration, party called the People's Party of Canada. Um, There's some resonance here in in America as well. And the leader of that party was invited in and he came to the editorial board and the young journalists at the Toronto Star boycotted that meeting because they said, we're not going to give this guy any oxygen. We think he's a racist. We think he's anti-immigrant and we're not going to sit in the same room as him. And the older editors managers said, well, wait a minute, your job as journalists is also to engage with ideas and with people with whom you may disagree. And so boycotting doesn't work. Anyway, it was, to me, that was a moment of truth, a moment of zen, as it were, that, that the Toronto Star suddenly acknowledged the fact that there are two cultures struggling inside the newsroom for oxygen themselves. It's a very it's a very complicated situation. And it's not just at the Toronto Star. The New York Times has had this problem. NPR has had this problem. Uh, the Wall Street Journal has had this problem. So, yeah, wearing your bias on your sleeve. Well, yeah. And, and, and as Bill Kovic and Tom Rosenstiel wrote in The Elements of Journalism, journalists should not leave their conscience at the door when they come into work. That they're their, their conscience, their awareness should inform their journalism, but not deform their journalism. How do you strike that balance? And that's one of the things that I've been engaged, engaging with my students about. Uh, how do you balance your powerful belief in something, yet do it in a way that is fair to your audience? That, to me, is the critical, the critical choice. Yeah, that moves into our next segment, verifying the news. By the time you figure out a story, the internet's already onto the next one. And by the time it's verified, you have another story and another story and then this one until you forgot about all of them. It's like the Churchill quote, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth gets a chance to put on its pants. I didn't verify you really said that, but. Uh, what, what Churchill said is that the truth is so rare that it must be protected by a bodyguard of lies. That was wartime. But. And, and the problem with, you raise a really interesting issue, which is how do you provide responsible contextual journalism at a time when you're being 
inundated with um, with information from all all sources. And I think that one of the one of the issues is that until news organizations figure out a way that they can uh, spend money in a better way, make money, they need to make money. There's no question about that. But they need to also understand that their ultimate responsibility is to their readers, viewers, and listeners. When Bill Keller was editor-in-chief at the New York Times in the early 2000s, and things were going well for the Times, and he made an announcement that they've got got enough money that they're going to hire dozens more journalists, editors, and reporters. And he made this announcement in the newsroom. And as soon as he made the announcement, the share value of the New York Times on the stock exchange dropped because the money was not going to the shareholders. It was going back into the newsroom. And I think that it's only gotten, only gotten worse since then. Um, and, and what we need to figure out a way is, can news organizations not just go to the bottom of the barrel for news to fill the news hole, as it's called, and to provide information that is both important and interesting. I'm not saying that we have to do a lot of stories about uh, the price of wheat, but if we could do stories about how there are pri- the price of groceries has gone up everywhere and people are, fi- are finding this to be appalling, that's the story we do, not just the price of wheat. And it's interesting you mentioned Bill Keller. He's at the Marshall Project now, a nonprofit investigative organization. Is that the direction people should go? Or where do you see the best mix? How can you do that when you have the realities of the market, which are, and, and in America at least, almost half of the newspapers are owned by hedge funds and private equity groups that are known to cut costs at any, you know, they don't care about the future of democracy. It's interesting. We're having that discussion in Canada now because there are a lot of news deserts outside of Toronto and Montreal. Um, that there is a kind of an impoverishment of information in much of the country. And the, and the same is true in the United States. Um, one of the things that I think is going to be interesting is to find ways in which standalone, independent, journalistic organizations can partner and provide content to mainstream media organizations. So that Bill Keller's group um, needs to figure out a way that they can partner, provide content, serve the public in a much broader way, and see if that works. In Canada, the public broadcaster, the CBC, is the largest single news organization in the country. And it's doing, if, if ratings are a guide, it's doing terribly. What's happened to the fact that there is this terrific news gathering organization that doesn't seem to be serving the public as it once did? So, I mean, there are a lot of ways in which, you know, we need to unscramble the egg, as it were, and, and figure out better ways of providing information that is both local, because there is a, a real dearth of local information, and in fact, there is so much, so little, such thin information at the local level, because it's so expensive, so that news organizations are 
relying on what I call the low-hanging fruit of local news, which is weather, traffic, and crime. Now, you need that information, but that's not all you need. So how do we make sure that, that, that the landscape, that, that, the, that the media environment richer, and that's going to be the challenge for the next generation, for you guys. I've done, I've done my bit to screw up, the, screw up the media, so now it's your turn. And, you, and I'm serious. What I, what I tell my students is, is that you guys get out there, get a job, and then ask your bosses, is this the best way to do it? Can we do it any better? And that's going to be the challenge. And I think I've, I've created a whole bunch of, uh, of radicals in various newsrooms in, in and around uh, North America with my students who are going in there and saying to their, their, uh, their bosses, why are we doing it this way? Not to be, not to be jerks or, or negative Nellies, but just to say there must be a better way of doing this. Uh, one of my students... Who, who's, who, came, who came from Uganda, actually, and he got, a, he got a position on the website of the CBC, which is a pretty good, pretty good gig. And uh, his supervisor said to him, I want you to go on YouTube, find something that's vaguely Canadian, write some copy around it, and then we'll put it up on our website, and then it's ours. And he said, why don't we do the story ourselves? And he said, oh, we leave that to other, other broadcasters. I mean, the pressure on in newsrooms now to, to fill that news hole is, is so profound and it's, and it's damaging journalism and it's damaging democracy. Anyone watching right now, make sure to like, subscribe, share, follow the Substack so that we can and send me an email so we can get together, figure out how to unscramble the egg or rescramble the egg. And uh, if you want to find Jeffrey's book, it's called Trusting the News in a Digital Age Towards a New News Literacy. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, for taking the time out of your day. It was my, it was my pleasure, guys. Really, I appreciate it. Yeah, cool. Thank I mean, you. I, I became, I, I miss the United States. I became a U.S. citizen while I lived in Washington. And, and I, I know things are complicated now but I, I miss the I miss the turmoil of journalism in the United States it's really it's really vital and you guys do an important job wow you made it to the end of the podcast thanks so much for listening by the way we also are a video podcast where you can see extra memes charts visuals about the segments so you can find that on YouTube or subscribe to our Substack newsletter for exclusive updates. And thank you so much for listening. See you next week.